Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Saturday the 30th of April 2022. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can to protect yourself and your community get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroglob Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist or particle physicist. So let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your sky guide from Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How are you going? Very well, thanks, Ian. It's great to be speaking with you again, and I'm really looking forward to hear what's up in the sky in May, especially we're all looking forward to a conjunction, and I'm not talking about and or for but yet. <laughs> we're talking about a different, con- a different conjunction. Can you tell us, Ian? What's up in the sky for the month of May? Okay, there is quite a lot that's up in the month of May. But what I'm going to start off with before I introduce you to anything is to point out to the listeners that on the 1st of May, we have a spectacular conjunction between Venus and Jupiter. I'm going to go into detail about that in a moment. But for the very first thing, if you're listening to this, make sure to set your alarms for the for early morning, 1st of May, so you can see the conjunction of Jupiter and Venus. And now I'll go into my normal talk. So once again, uh, this month, most of the action is in the morning skies. We've got four bright planets delighting us in the morning. Of course, you have to get up early. We also have the Eto Aquarian meteor shower. Uh, again, you have to get up early for that. So I'll start with the moon, as I normally do. So the uh, new moon is on May the 1st. Then on May the 9th, there's the first quarter moon. May the 16th is the full moon. And May the 23rd is the last quarter. Your best time, of course, for looking for faint things and faint fuzzies is between uh, the the 1st and the, the 9th in the evening. And then... After the May the 23rd, when the moon's rising late, there'll be another good chance to see the faint fuzzy. Uh, apogee is on the May the 5th, and perigee is on May the 18th. So that's close to the full moon. Well, we don't get to see perigee full moons until the next couple of months. Yep. 
So although there's not much happening in terms of planetary action in the evening sky, Mercury's been working down in the horizon deep in the twilight, and it will continue to do so. So uh, uh, for a while, and before reappearing in the morning sky next month. But on May the 22nd, there's a chance to see Mercury. Mercury and the thin crescent moon are very close together, but this is deep in the twilight. So we have to be looking at 30 minutes after sunset or maybe even 20 minutes after sunset. The sky will, uh, near the horizon, will be quite bright and you'll need to uh, have a nice uh, level horizon without any obstruction like the ocean or a desert or something like that. And you will probably need binoculars to see Mercury, but you should be able to see the thin crescent moon low above the, the uh, horizon. And then in binoculars, if you sweep off towards the north, you should see the bright dot of Mercury within about a binocular distance of the moon. Yep. And so that's it for the planetary action in the uh, evening sky. After the second, without the moon to guide you, it'll be very hard to find Mercury in the twilight. But let's go to the morning sky. And as I said at the beginning of this, uh, Venus starts the month spectacularly close to Jupiter on the first. The pair will be less than finger width apart. In fact, they'll be 0.2 degrees apart. And I'll get to fit into the field of view of medium power telescope eyepieces. So you'll be able to see the phase of Venus, Jupiter's bands, and the moons in uh, medium-powered telescope eyepieces. Uh, in binoculars, you'll see the bright uh, dot of Venus. You won't be able to see any detail. You won't be able to see any detail uh, in Jupiter in binoculars either, but you will be able to see that it's a spherical shape and you'll be able to see uh, the moons of Jupiter. In fact, the, the the moons will be relatively well separated, so you should have a, a very good chance to see them. So the pair also form a line with Saturn and Mars, and this is all easily seen an hour and a half before sunrise. So in reasonably dark skies, you'll be able to see, see the line up quite uh, easily. Saturn and Mars, of course, are much dimmer than bright Jupiter and Venus, but that part of the sky is uh, pretty devoid of any uh, bright stars. So Saturn and Mars are the obvious brightest objects above the pair of Jupiter and Venus. Yep. So after this spectacular pairing, Venus continues to seep towards the horizon over the month as Jupiter rises towards Mars. Well, now, strictly speaking, both Mars and Jupiter are heading towards the horizon. They're orbiting, taking them uh, horizonwards. But at the same time, the, the constellations are rising. So it appears that Mars is effectively stationary uh, above the horizon, even though it's moving against the background stars. And Mars is heading faster than Jupiter, so that the pair appear to be coming closer. Yep. So Mars also passes quite close to Neptune. So on the 18th and 19th, it's within 0.7 degrees of Neptune. So the pair potentially visible in binoculars and medium field uh, telescope eyepieces. In telescopes, Mars will be a, uh, a visible but featureless disk, and Neptune should be a, a dot or faint disk, somewhat bluish. So the blue and red, uh, if you've got good colour eyesight, should be a fairly interesting contrast. 
Uh, Mars continues to get closer to Jupiter from the 28th to the 31st. Mars and Jupiter are within one degree of each other. That's been about a big width, so obviously easy to fit into wide-field telescope eyepieces and binoculars. On the 30th, they're at their closest when they're 0.7 degrees apart. So the pairs are easily visible in binoculars together and in medium-field uh, telescope eyepieces. Uh, again, as with Venus, Jupiter is reasonably visible, but you won't see any uh, details on uh, Jupiter. And uh, Mars will be a, a dot in binoculars. In medium eyepieces, you may see the stripes of Jupiter, but Mars will still be a featureless disk. Now, Saturn is not having too many interesting encounters in terms of unaided eye, uh, but it will be a, a very good telescopic target for most of this month in the early morning. But interestingly, between the 5th and the 9th, Saturn is within one degree of the asteroid 4 Vesta. Now, the 4 Vesta is a, basically a dot. It's going to be uh, about a magnitude 7, uh, so easily visible in binoculars uh, and in wide-field telescope eyepieces. So you'll be able to see within a, a wide-field telescope eyepiece Saturn's ring. The Vesta will be a bright dot that moves from night to night, uh, so you'll be easily able to track it. In terms of uh, interesting conjunctions with the Moon, on May the 22nd and 23rd, the Moon's uh, close to Saturn. On the 25th, the crescent Moon forms a triangle with the pair of Jupiter and Mars. And on the 27th, the crescent Moon is just above Venus. So lots of interesting things to see in the sky in terms of planets. Excellent. Now that's the planetary action, but uh, don't forget, of course, we've got uh, the meteor shower. So the Edea Aquarian meteor shower is debris from Halley's Comet, and it's a fairly consistent meteor shower. It's peaking this year on May the 6th at 8 hours universal time, which is after sunrise on the May the 6th in the late afternoon. However, from the, the 7th to the 9th, we're going to have uh, decent uh, rates. And uh, the weekend mornings of 8th and the 9th, when you don't have to worry about getting uh, going to work afterwards, uh, from about 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. local time, you should be able to see a meteor from about every three to four minutes. The moon is waxing, but it sets well before radiant rises, uh, so you won't have any interference from the moon. Very good. What's really it will be very good. And what's really interesting this year is the bright planets provide a really good guide to the location of the Edea Aquarian shower. So bright Venus and Jupiter obviously form an obvious pair. If you draw a line between the two going up, the next bright object you come to is Mars. And just to the north or the left of Mars, about a bit under hand spans away is the radiant of the Edea Aquarians. So, of course, when you're watching meteors, it's a good idea not to stare fixedly at the radiant because the meteors start their burn away from the radiant. The radiant is where, you, where the meteors appear to come from. So if you're looking around Mars and let your eyes scan from Mars to the south and then from Mars to the north and then up and down, you should be able to catch uh, any meteors as you're coming coming through. Yep. That, that will be really good. So the the we expect something like between 20 to 22 meteors per hour. Those further north in uh, Darwin will have better rates. Those further south in uh, Melbourne or Hobart will have less rates. But 
basically uh, you, you should be seeing somewhere between uh, a, a meteor every three to four minutes. But of course, remember that meteors are like buses. They won't come for a while and all of a sudden the whole pile will come at the same time. So don't expect to see meteors to come every three minutes on the dot. You'll see a meteor, you know, it'll be a break and you see a couple and it'll be a break. So don't get discouraged if you go out and you don't see a meteor straight away and then you don't see a meteor exactly three minutes after that. Have a little bit of patience, wait, and you should see some, some nice uh, meteors. Excellent. Of course, as with everything, if you walk directly out of a... Uh, if you turned on your lights, made a cup of tea and then walked out from uh, your bright kitchen into the backyard to look up, It'll take a little while for your eyes to get used to it. So, you know, take about three to five minutes for your eyes to get adapted to the dark. It's going to be a bit cold, so make sure you're well rugged up and uh, not freezing to death. Find, find something to sit on and uh, face towards the, uh, the northeast where, we, where we'll see Mars. Uh, and then uh, just relax and wait. And the meteors are fast meteors which is a disadvantage because they go shooting across the sky rather than some of the slower meteors. We've got a lot better chance to pick them up. But uh, many of them have uh, persistent trains, so that, that means that there's a, a line of uh, smoke or dust that's left behind after the meteor goes past, so you can easily see where it's been. Nice. And that's the meteor forecast. So... Of course, the, as I said, the, the, with the dark skies, there's lots of stars to observe. And Orion, which has been dominating the sky for the past few months, is now setting in the west. But Orion's nemesis, Scorpius, the scorpion is rising in the east. So around about 10 p.m., if you have a, a clear horizon, you can see Orion just on the western horizon and Scorpius just on the eastern horizon. Yep. I've described the, uh, uh, the emu the dark constellation of the EMU last podcast, but uh, it's going to be easier to see uh, this month and it's best seen around between 10 to 10.30. So you've got the, fringe, the Scorpius forming the fringe of stars of the of body of the EMU. Around about 10 o'clock, it will be high enough and then you have the dark lanes forming the neck and the head going up towards the Southern Cross. Excellent. Also, around about 10, uh, 10 o'clock, the Southern Cross will be almost at its highest. So if you look at the Southern Cross and if you let your eyes roam further southward, you'll see what looks like another cross-shaped constellation. This is the False Cross. Yep. Now, almost directly between the Southern Cross and the False Cross, you'll see a brightish star with what appears to be a, a little pattern of stars around it. That's Theta Carina, and that's the Southern Pleiades. Unlike the Northern Pleiades, it's not as dramatic to the unaided eye. But in binoculars, you've got this beautiful A-shaped formation of stars. And if you move your binoculars up by about a binocular width, you'll see a spray of, of uh, tiny little stars. That's the Eta Carina Nebula. And if you're out away from the suburbs in dark sky sites, those stars will be embedded in a beautiful nebula. And if you're really dark, you can see a, a dark band across this nebulosity that's called the Keyhole Nebula. Yep. And as I said last week, you know, the position of the, of the Southern Cross and the pointers 
lets you find only the centauri. So if you draw a triangle from Theta Crucis and Theta Centauri, send that up by a couple of handstands, you'll see a fuzzy star, which is Omega Centauri, one of the best, the best globular cluster in the sky. And it's a really good position for observing. Fuzzy ball in binoculars. Uh, once you start getting a, a telescope on it, you can start seeing that fuzziness resolve into sprays of, of thousands of thousands of tiny stars. Lovely. So lots to see in the sky this month. Very good. Going back to Eta Karuna, Ian, I heard that it's going to explode. It's going to go bang soon. But when astronomers talk about soon, they mean in the next 100,000 or a couple of million years. Yeah, with Eta Karuna, it could be earlier, maybe within a couple of hundred years. Eta Karuna is now, if you look at it, you can barely see it and it's quite dim. But it used to be one of the brighter stars in the southern sky in the 19th century. And what we think is happening, it's doing something very similar to what's been going on with Betelgeuse. It's blasting off layers of dust which are obscuring it. And we may see it become brighter uh, in the near future. It's, it's, it's been fluctuating in brightness uh, recently. So we might see it brighter in the near future as the dust shells go away. But you've probably seen some of the images taken with the Hubble of the expansion of the dust clouds around Eta Carina, which have been looking quite spectacular. Very good. I'll hold my breath and keep my eye on it. <laughs> Please don't hold your breath. It's going to be a long time before you see it blow up. <laughs> Very good. Now, you mentioned Hubble, and I just saw today that the JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, has passed another milestone. Yes, they've now done all the focusing and they're now going on to testing each of the instruments and doing the sensitivity testing. So they're beginning to pull out the ability of the telescope to find fainter and fainter objects. And I, I, I just saw on the way back home some beautiful images of the various instruments, the science instruments, as they're uh, uh, trying to calibrate them. Uh, and the detail is absolutely amazing. Yeah, apparently there'll be two more months, possibly about 60 to 80 days of refining all the instruments, and then we can see the science begin. Indeed, indeed. And uh, and the other thing that's uh, going to occur is we're going to very soon there's going to be uh, the, the Event Horizon Telescope Collaboration is going to do a press release very, very soon about something uh, groundbreaking they've discovered about the Milky Way. So um, we should be paying very close attention to that. And not only that, did you see the photographs from Mission 25 of the Ingenuity helicopter? Oh, yes. Um, yeah, because yeah, I, I, I was expecting that uh, I was uh, been reading their um, the blog, the uh, telescope, uh, the, the Ingenuity helicopter blog, and they were trying to work out the best path for the um, 
uh, ingenuity to get to the next station uh, ahead of the, uh, the rover Perseverance. And there was a lot of discussion about whether they should go over the landings or the landing site of the back shell and the parachute because they were a bit worried that maybe the structures would interfere with its capability to detect the um, surface. But in fact, they did send it to, what they did was they sent it uh, there, but they skirted around the, the back edges so that it didn't go directly over the site. But they've got these fantastic images of the, um, the parachute and the back shell, which has splattered rather nicely. So I flagged this to Dr. Space Junk, and uh, perhaps she might like to talk about this at some stage about Mars archaeology. It's just been so fantastic. Yep, very exciting. And now, do you have a tangent for us for this month? Oh, do I have a tangent? Yes, I do have a tangent. Now, you may remember from our previous podcasts, I've been on a bit of a jag about the naming of names. Yep. And this tangent will continue on in this vein. Now, you may have noticed when you look up at the sky that most of our constellations have Greco-Roman names. So Leo, Orion, Scorpius, and so on and so on. And there's a handful of constellations that represent the creatures of the southern hemisphere, like the bird of paradise, Apis, Chameleon, Tucana, the Toucan. Uh, these are, again, all uh, couched in Latin names. And there's a bunch of scientific instruments, like Telescopium and Microscopium, and Fornax, the furnace, the laboratory furnace. Um, not exactly exciting uh, in terms of imagination. Imagine looking up at the sky, look, there's the laboratory furnace. Yeah, right. Not exactly exciting name. But despite this Greco-Roman coordination of the sky constellation-wise, you'd be surprised at the number of stars that have Arabic names. Oh, yeah. some, of the most prom- some of the most prominent stars in our sky, uh, like Aldebaran, the eye of Taurus the bull, Achenar, which is a favourite of ours in the southern sky. It's the anchor star of the constellation of the river. And one of our prominent southern stars, uh, stars the Pomelhout, uh, is also an Arabic name. If you go to uh, Orion, the archetypical Greco-Roman constellation, Betelgeuse in Orion's shoulder is Arabic, whereas Bellatrix on the other shoulder is Latin for female warrior. And all the stars of Orion's belt have Arabic names. So it's very, it's part of the history in that after the torch of astronomy mathematics was passed on from Greece and Rome to the uh, Arabian astronomers, they uh, produced really in comprehensive star atlases. And then this information was passed back to uh, the, the uh, Europeans and they kept the uh, Arabic names. But if you remember a few podcasts back, I talked about star naming scams, yep. that the body responsible for naming stars is the International Astronomical Union. Yep. Now, the uh, IAU have approved 313 star names. Many of these are old star names, but they've also had 86 new star names from around the world. There's four Australian Aboriginal names, 11 Chinese. There's also Coptic, Hindu, Mayan, Polynesian, and South African. I tried to count these up, but I ran out of time and steam. But just to illustrate 
some of these names. I'm going to do a tour of the stars that form the dark constellation of the emu. So first up, we start with the stars of the Southern Cross. This isn't actually part of the emu, but they sit above the dark uh, nebula, of what we, which we call the coal sack, that forms the head of the emu. Yep. So we have the first up is Acrux Alpha Crucis. This is a surprisingly is a late 19th century Americanism. The next is Mimosa Beta Crucis, which is a Latin word meaning actor. Yep. The, the, the reason that uh, of the stars of the Southern Cross, one actually has a Latin uh, name, is that uh, 2,000 years ago, the Theta Crucis was visible to the Greeks and they, they made it part of the constellation of Centaurus. So it was represented one of the books of the Centaur. Then the next up is Gamma Crucis, and this is called Gacrux, very excitingly, uh, in the 18th century. Um, okay, you've got this, uh, you've, you've got these expeditions to the southern hemisphere, you've got this amazing cross like constellation. Uh, one of the stars is already called uh, Mimosa. And so the next star you name is Gacrux. Yep. Why? Anyway, so uh, going around, so Acrux uh, is the brightest, then there's Delta, uh, Beta Crucis, next brightest. Acrux, the next brightest. The next brightest is Delta Crucis. This is now known as Imai. Uh, this is the name given to it by the Mersai people of modern Ethiopia. The next along, the next uh, somewhat dimmer, is Epsilon Crucis. And this now has the uh, waterman name Guinean. And Guinean uh, means uh, it represents a red dilly bag filled with special souls of knowledge. Then moving down the dark lane that marks the EMU next, we come next to Beta Centauri, one of the two pointers. Its name is Hadar. This is an Arabic word whose root meaning is settled area. Uh, or on the ground. It was only officially named as, as, as other than Beta Centauri in 2016. Now below Blue White Harai is Orange Alpha Centauri. This is a, a triple star and it's the closest star system to our sun. And it actually has two names. The first one is Rival Centaurus. Now this is actually Arabic for Hoof of the Centaur. And uh, has some confusion as um, Rigel in Taurus can be uh, can can be confused with Rigel in uh, the constellation of Orion. So, but technically, Rigel in Taurus or Rigel Kent is the name for, for Alpha Centauri A of the triple star, and Ptolemy, which means the ostriches in Arabic, is Alpha Centauri B. There isn't a special a separate name for Alpha Centauri. C or, uh, or Proxima Centauri. Now, moving further down, we come to the stars that form the fringe of the feathers on the emu that make up the classic constellation of Scorpius. Now, obviously, the most prominent orange star in the constellation is Antares. This is a Greek name, meaning rival of Mars because of its color. And uh, because it's on the ecliptic, the Mars uh, often comes close to it. Uh, so, uh, I mean, last year we had the site of uh, Mars close to Antares. So, Antares forms the centre of a line of three stars. To the north, and, and as we're seeing it in, in Australia, the constellation is almost parallel to the horizon. And so it, it looks a bit like those, one of those 
hooks that they, that, that they used to use on cargo back in the old days of the sailing ships. So the prominent uh, star is, is Antares, as I said. To the north uh, or right of that is Almiak, which is uh, Arabic. And to the left is, I'm going to uh, pronounce this incorrectly, is Paakahule, which is the, the Hawaiian name for, for, for Tau Scorpio. This apparently means a vagabond owning no home or house-to-house -house wanderer. Now, perpendicular, moving north from these three stars, you'll see three perpendicular stars. These are from top to bottom, Bang, Shuba, and Akrab. Uh, and the latter two directly uh, are Arabic names directly relating to the head of the scorpion, in fact, the Shuba actually means head of the scorpion, and Akrab mean, uh, uh, means scorpion. So on the other side of those three central stars, moving south from Pekule, the next bright, bright star is Larawag. And this is, again, a indigenous name. It's a waterman name again. And this, uh, in the, to the waterman peoples, Scorpius is, represents a group of uh, elders forming a, um, doing a ceremony. And Larawag is the signal watcher who's watching out to make sure that everyone who attends the ceremony has the right to be there. Just immediately after Larawag is a pair of uh, stars uh, that are named uh, um, uh, Mu1 and Mu2 Scorpii. These names are now examined near a Exam Ura, apologies for not pronouncing it completely, and Pipirima. Now, Exam Ura is the eyes of the lion, a nickname for the binary amongst the uh, Khoi Khoi people of South Africa. And Pipirima refers to several mythological twins from a Tahitian legend, a boy and girl who ran away from their parents and became stars in the sky. Further um, uh, south again, or continuing leftwards, is a star grouping dominated by Beta and Zeta 1 and Zeta 2 Scorpii, and another star above that, and then a spray of stars underneath it, which form what's called the false comet. Yep. Now the stars are starting to curl around. After that is either Scorpii, which hasn't been given a name yet. The next brightest star is Sargas, and uh, it's a Sumerian word, meaning uh, a weapon of the uh, god Marduk, or a Persian word for arrowhead. And this was only named in 2016. As we continue to come around, we've come to Gertab, which is another Sumerian derived word meaning scorpion. There's a lot of scorpions in this in Scorpius. <laughs> yep. And heading back towards north, towards the body of the, of the scorpion. The next name is Mula, which is Sanskrit in origin. And then finally, the bright pair, Sha'ula, uh, Arabic for raised tail of the scorpion, and Lisat. Now, Lisat has an interesting history to its name. This one originally came from a Greek word that means foggy. The name was then translated into Arabic then badly retranslated back to Latin, 
mistranslated back into Arabic uh, to a word that means thing. So the the so there's a, uh, within the scorpion there's a number of newly minted words, a lot of old uh, old words, and a word that has been translated and translated and translated again until it comes out to something completely opposite to what it was meant to name. The reason that Lissat was originally named Foggy was it's referring to the fuzzy objects in the Milky Way, which are really nearby, and which are, to which the Lissat uh, points to. So um, I, I hope you've enjoyed this tour of the star names. Sadly, we can't show you, show you the splendid star Axolotl in Cetus because it's not visible from the naked eye. But anyway, uh, the point is that when you look up into the sky and you enjoy the diversity of stars, there's also a diversity of names coming from a range of cultures, all of which have uh, significant meaning in those cultures. Fantastic. And that reminds me, a new book's just come out by a couple of Indigenous astronomers we've interviewed on the show. The new book's called Sky Country, and it's by Crystal DiNapoli and Carly Noon, and it's just fantastic. So we can highly recommend that for people to round out their library and understand more about the science of Indigenous astronomy. And it's great to see those Indigenous names are being officially recognised at last. Yes, uh, I haven't bought the book yet. It's on my to-do list, but I'm, I've, I've heard lots of good things about it and I'm looking forward to getting a hold of it. We may see some more Australian Indigenous names going up uh, in the very near future. Certainly gives a, a different view of the sky where you have a broader understanding of the names and where they come from. Fantastic. History and culture above your head every time you walk out. Now, Ian, it's Friday the 29th of April here, and mm -hmm. I'm going to edit this tonight and tomorrow morning. And so this podcast will be going out on the 30th of April. And so hopefully those people that want a bit more information about the amazing conjunction that's coming up We'll get it in the 12 hours before conjunction happens. Certainly hope so. And when you put the podcast around, I'll put up some charts that will help people find them. Always good to work to a deadline. And well, thank you very <laughs> much. <laughs> thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Great to speak to you again. And remember, listeners, that if you want to know what's up in the sky, just put Astro Blogger into your favourite search engine and Ian always comes up as number one. Thanks, Ian. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to speak to you and it's a pleasure to bring the stars to everybody out there. I hope you have a wonderful time looking up and enjoying them. Good night, Ian. Have a great month. Good night, Brendan. You have a great month too. And in two weeks, we have a wonderful interview for you. And remember, Astrophys is free, ad-free, and unsponsored. But we're always very happy to recommend that you go to Rami Mandau at spaceaustralia.com for the very latest and best space news.
We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave.